you know, if they're questioning the value of your product and the cost of your product, you need to change or you're going to become obsolete because you're going to go out of business, right? And we're seeing that, unfortunately, that we've had more universities go out of business in the last two or three years than we ever have in our history. From Innovation Alley at Marquette University, I'm Chuck Swoboda, and this is Innovators on Tap, a show based on the idea that innovation is about leadership. It's a mindset to find a better way, and ultimately, it's about people. These conversations are designed to allow you to open your mind to new ideas and find ways to put those concepts to work. Together, we can solve big problems and maybe even change the world. When you think of a university president, what's the first word that comes to mind? You might think of administrator or academic, but you're probably not thinking innovator. Universities can be slow to change. They can feel like giant bureaucracy, and they can sometimes seem committed to ideas that might have been cutting edge 200 years ago, but have since passed their sell-by date. Higher education is slowly going through monumental change, one that some have called a crisis. With ballooning student debt, people questioning the value of higher education, and the role of universities changing in relation to students, companies, and communities, this is a challenge that is screaming for innovation. It's for those reasons that I was excited to sit down with Marquette University President Mike Lovell. We had an open and honest conversation about the future of higher ed and how his experience with leading innovation makes him uniquely positioned to guide Marquette through this challenging time. You will see that Mike's insights reinforce what Innovators on Tap is all about, that anyone can find their innovative spirit if they are willing to adjust their beliefs and change their behaviors. That's what's on tap today. Enjoy. Welcome to Innovators on Tap. It's great to have you here today. Uh, Well, thanks for having me. I know you get to do a lot of different interviews. I want to really focus today on the innovation aspect. What I thought we would do is go back to a story that uh, you told me once about, I think you were at Pittsburgh. You have this class where you're teaching innovation, or can you tell me more about that? Sure. It was a course called Product Realization, and I was running something called the Swanson Center for Product Innovation. And really, the idea about the course was we had companies that were coming to us with ideas about products that they wanted to have us help them create at the university. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be great if we had a class, you know, take some of these ideas and actually have them work on the ideas and actually make products out of them. And so the way the course worked is the companies would just have a set of requirements that the product had to meet. And then in the semester, you know, whatever the students produced, I'd match up against what the you know, requirements were and how well they actually met the requirements helped determine what their grade was for the course. And if I remember correctly, there was some work you did around you had a way to, you watched the habits of, there was a, I think you said a psychologist or somewhere, yeah. you were actually looking at what habits led to more effective results. Yeah, so it was very interesting because when I first started the course, about 50% of the teams that I that I worked with had a working prototype at the end. So it was only, you know, one in two. And it was always kind of frustrating for me because I could never predict which ones were going to be the ones that are successful or not. And I didn't necessarily understand why. And so I met a cognitive scientist by the name of Chris Shun, and he studied innovation. And so we got to talking, and it actually was very interesting because as an engineer, when you talk to a, a cognitive psychologist, 
it takes a while to get the language together because what I think is a model and he thinks is a model, I mean, it is very different. So it took us several months to really understand each other's approaches and what we're doing. But then we realized, boy, wouldn't it be great if we kind of married, you know, his approach, you know, from a cognitive perspective to my practical expenses as an engineer. And so we actually started, we wrote several research proposals and we had, the first one was not successful, but after that, we had four in a row that got funded between the Department of Education, the National Science Foundation, and some uh, some other foundations that we were working with. So we had, what we were able to do was we were able to outfit two studios uh, where the student teams did all of their work. And so we had four cameras. We captured everything that we did. We ended up hiring seven or eight undergraduate students that cataloged what they talked about, what they did. And, and so we watched them. Uh, through the course of the semester, and we were able to, to determine that there was a science behind this. And so we, we went from 50% of the students being successful in the class to seven out of eight. If I remember, there's there's a one or two big learnings that kind of came out of that. Yeah. So the very first learning was that students that had schedules that lined up and they met more often. That was actually one of the <laughs> one of the most direct links to being successful with students that met a lot and had discussions a lot. Uh, but from a from a engineering perspective, you know, I when I started the course, I had always encouraged them to get to a working prototype as quickly as possible with the ideas once they had a prototype, then they had a better chance of getting something that was going to work and iterate on it. But what we learned in the class was just the opposite, that we had to keep them from making a prototype in the course to at least halfway through the course, if not longer. Uh, because what happens is is that once you have a working prototype, everything you do is one iteration off of that prototype. You become fixated. So the idea was we would stay at the ideation stage for much longer periods than I would have thought, you know, originally when we when we started the course. And then the third thing that we learned was the the most innovative, you know, products that were developed by the teams were those that used analogies across domains, taking something totally unrelated to the product they were working on and bringing it into the space, like they were had been working on their car and they were and they bring it into the biomedical space. That's when something very special happened, oftentimes disruptive. You remind me of a story that we uh, we were working on one of our LED products at Cree and one of our scientists, uh, a guy named Jerry, we were stuck on a Friday, went home and he came back next week because I've got it figured out. And he goes, oh, what'd you do? He goes, well, I was walking down the aisle at Home Depot and I saw this thing on a shelf and it made me think, hey, couldn't I apply that idea to some semiconductor problem? And it was the same idea. His, and I think there's something about people's mindsets that allow them to make those connections. You know, this idea of connecting the dots. And so I'm curious, is it teachable or were there, do you think there are people that were inherently better at it than others for certain reasons? Yeah. Being on a grant with a cognitive scientist who actually <laughs> studies these things, first of all, it is teachable. That that's one of the things that we learned, uh, and we and actually it's a thought process that you help people go through. And uh, but there are people that are predisposed to be good at this, you know. So there are people that are better at it than others. It's just like anything else, you know. You can teach someone to play a sport, but some people are just going to be better at it than others, right? You and I can practice all we want. We're not going to be Michael Jordan. No, exactly. Exactly. And so, but the idea is, is that yes, but people can get better at this. And again, we did show that just about any team, you know, can be innovative if they go through the right process. You said they met a lot was a key thing. So you want a lot of interactions amongst the team. You know, it comes to mind where one, we try to have remote teams and they're not connected. The world at Cree was 
we actually put everyone right together, right? We, you wanted these, you know, it's the old idea. You want that water cooler talk, whatever. Mm-hmm. You want these interactions. Do you think then that some of the things you learned are maybe hindered today by how we try to do this remote or we try to do it like a video conference is nice, but it's not the same thing as you and I sitting here talking. So what do you think about that? I definitely think one of the strengths was is when you have that group together and they're, they're drawing on a whiteboard and they're commenting and thinking about each other. And, and again, one of the really neat things we found was that those crazy ideas that you want to throw out right away we have them reserve judgment for 24 hours because sometimes those were the best ideas, ones that initially didn't seem like they made much sense. And I worry that if you're not in a room together and are able to share those things, you know, if you dismiss them when you're away from each other, they're gone, right? But if you're there and we ask you, hey, reserve judgment on this for 24 hours before you decide to throw an idea out. In some of the work I was doing, I was looking at the difference between a traditional brainstorming, which is all ideas are okay, and then a conversation where they've actually done research where you introduce the debate condition. And and the research says that you actually get better ideas when there's some debate. What you're teasing out there is that debate condition is way easier for you and I to do if we're in the same room. It kind of self-balances itself. There's a, I don't know, there's something about human interaction that allows me to be more constructive. And you go, okay, you're talking about my idea and not the person. And I think when we separate, we get those boundaries, whether you know, you remote people. I think you lose some of that ability to be really kind of honest and creative in the moment. So you said you have to think more first and not prototype right away. And so everyone's talking today about design sprints. And the first thing is take an idea, test it, test it, test it. I personally have seen that work. But it seems to fly a little bit in the face of what you learned in this process. Do you think maybe that those design sprints while solving one problem are limiting some of the bigger ideas? No, there's no doubt in my mind. And, you know, it's interesting. I've done other things in my career where design sprints and doing a lot of ideas a lot of perturbations of something over a short period of time can lead to success. I, I think you need things to, you know, really, you know, fester and have an opportunity to grow, you know, and that just takes time. Yeah, I think there's a difference between iterative ideas and the big disruptive ideas. Yeah. And I think the big disruptive ones happen in a different way. And I think that's what you guys were seeing at Pittsburgh. So last, on that topic, when are we going to be able to have someone at Marquette uh, have this experience? Well, it's 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 great because I, I'm actually going to teach for the first time this fall, uh, and in when I was it's, it's interesting because I've taught this will be the third university I've taught the course because I, I obviously taught in Pittsburgh and then I I brought it to UWM when I was there, and at, at Pittsburgh I had engineering students and business students together at UWM I had engineering students and the art students together and here I'm going to have engineering students and the comm students together. And so it's interesting because I think you get a little different flavor by the different, you know, combinations of people uh, that you bring together. And I will say that it's always great, you know, when you have not just students, but anyone from a distance discipline working with you, because uh, a lot of times they question the paradigms that you accept as being absolute when actually uh, you find out that sometimes they're not so absolute when people start questioning, well, why can't you do this? And this will, because this is what we learn. No, but does that really make sense? And so I'm looking forward to, you know, having, you know, our, uh, our comm students working with the engineering students on this. I want to step back a little bit prior to that. I know you, at one point you were at Pittsburgh, you were, I think you were getting your master's degree and you joined a startup yeah, so I was at Pittsburgh, and I was um, actually it was when I was doing my uh, PhD. I just completed my my first year, and 
there was uh, I met a, a gentleman who was working uh, for a startup company, startup engineering software company uh, at the time it was called Swanson Analysis Systems. Uh, John Swanson was the founder, and I had uh, I'd, I'd been doing code for my uh, as part of my dissertation. And as we talked, you know, they had an internship, and so I, I started with the summer internship, and then I ended up continuing staying on with the company for the last two years of my PhD, and then it was my first job out of school, my the first two years out of. So I was four years, you know, with the startup entering software company, uh, which was a really for me it was a really good experience. I often describe going through that process when you do your dissertation, you go really deep on a topic and you know you have a hard time separating the forest from the trees but then I through the startup software company I got to see the world in a much different way than I was traditionally getting a PhD at the university and I oftentimes think that that experience of those four years really helped shaped you know my later on in my career is the way I thought and the way I did things. So that company, I believe, is now called Ansys. Ansys, yeah. And I was looking them up. Their their revenue is now about one point three billion. Sure. Their market cap is sixteen billion dollars. Do you ever wonder if maybe you might have wanted to stay? It's interesting because you know I, I've, I've obviously thought of that. So when I left, it was when we went public at the end of four years, and that's when I pivoted out. Uh, my friends that were there, uh, that stayed there, many of them retired in their forties. You know, and and I think you know that was a different life. But I never, I be honest with you, I never have regretted not staying. You know, with the company, and I, it was really interesting because you know it, one of the reasons why I pivoted out is when you're in a smaller startup company and then you go public, the company, the culture changes in an instant, and it was amazing because I remember going to the. Uh, when right when it sold, and I remember the very first meeting we had is a full company wide meeting, and the changes that they were going to be making, the way they were talking about the company changing differently. There were a number of us, not just myself, that said, "Okay, this is a good opportunity for us to to, to pivot out of the company," just because, you know, it was much went from a very much of a family atmosphere to a corporate you know atmosphere, and and is you know actually it is I think it's the biggest engineering uh, software company in the world now in terms of in, in terms of its sales and revenues. I think that the transition of what a public company does is pretty interesting. I have to say, you know, when I joined Cree, it was public, but it was we didn't make any money. It was six million in revenue, and so the difference between a thirty-person company with six million in revenue and the one we built, which was one point seven billion and seven thousand. So I had a stated goal: we were going to build a billion-dollar startup. And I think if you look, we were still startup-like at a billion. And then I said, "Fine, we're going to do a two billion. And somewhere. There, uh, it quickly the public company boundary conditions and rules just started to overwhelm. At the end of the day, the predictability required by the public company, by the by the stock market, by the quarterly results, it just made you have to do things to reduce risk, and 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 in that risk reduction effectively reduces your ability to be innovative. One of the nice things is, even though I pivoted out of the company, I I still developed code for them for at least you know, probably 15 more years until I came to Milwaukee. Yeah. So I still was able to do it remotely. It was something that uh, I, I, I did it because I enjoyed it more than anything else. And it kept my hand and still being a part of that. I want to make this pivot to your role as Marquette president. So you're, you're at Pitt, then you come to UWM to become the dean. And then along the way, you become the interim chancellor, and then you become the chancellor, and then you come to Marquette. And how many University presidents, do you think, have been in a startup and wrote code for 15 years? Uh, I'm not sure there's been a whole lot, not too many. But uh, again, you know, I think, you know, all of us have, whether I be myself or other presidents, you know, we all have different experiences and different backgrounds. 
they uniquely position us to lead. And, you know, I always say that, you know, I was fortunate because, you know, I was preceded by 23 Jesuits who took the university to a really great place and, and, and you know, we were a fabulous institution. But my background and experiences are much different than my predecessors. And so that is actually, I think, a benefit to Marquette because, you know, when I look at the university, I have a different lens than they do and I see things and opportunities that they may not have seen. And likewise, they had things that they saw that I wouldn't have seen myself. And so, but I do think at the time, you know, for higher education that we need to be more innovative and entrepreneurial. And so I think the background that I have, you know, doing those things, you know, I can now apply to the university in a time when it's important to be able to do that. You obviously know well that I was the board chair when uh, we were doing that search. You know, at the time, as a board, we could see that higher, that change was coming in higher. We didn't know when or how fast, but you could feel that something different was coming to disrupt this business model. And so as we looked for candidates, and it was an extensive process, interviewed a lot of people, and it was so clear to me when I finally had a chance to meet you that your background as an innovator was going to be critical to the challenges Marquette was going to face. And so you're starting your six. What's the challenge higher ed needs to overcome that we need to apply innovation to? Yeah. So you know, higher ed is in a very interesting place. And again, I've been in you know higher ed for 20 years and it's never been a place where there's so many forces acting against it. You know, so I think the the biggest thing is, you know, the the public is now questioning the value of higher ed. So when people are questioning the value of your product, that's an interesting space to be in to begin with. Um, and there's really several reasons for that. First is that, you know, you think about student loan debt, you know, you know, sometimes the people call it a national crisis. Uh, it's because over the last 30 to 40 years, public investment in higher education in general from the, both the federal and state governments has decreased significantly, you know, by, a, you know, any accounts by a, a factor of two or three. And so that means the burden of the cost of education falls on students and their families. And so that means that students, you know, have to take out more debt uh, than they have in the past. And you apply that, you know, on top of that to the fact that um, there's people question whether what we are teaching at the university is applicable, you know, anymore. And there's good reason for that, too, because we know that um, traditional education is becoming obsolete because data and information, you know, we have the touch of our fingers, you know, on our phones. Uh, we know that 65% of students are going to be working in jobs that don't exist today, you know, solving problems we don't know are problems yet using technologies that haven't been invented. And so, Knowing that that's the future, you know, the way we educate students, you know, what they learn when they're here and the, what they're paying, you know, that's, you know, all of those things, you know, people are questioning, you know, whether we're still teaching the right way, we're teaching the right things, and are we costing too much? And if they're questioning the value of your product and the cost of your product, you need to change or you're going to become obsolete because you're going to go out of business, right? And we're seeing that, unfortunately, that we've had more universities go out of business in the last two or three years than we ever have in our history. It brings a bunch of questions to mind. So, you know, one of them is on the, on the universities going bankrupt. I, I saw something that Clay Christensen, who wrote The Innovator's Dilemma, said it was in 2017. And it, it's something along the lines of, of the 4,000 colleges and universities in the United States, he predicted within 10 to 15 years, half of them would go yeah, bankrupt. That's right. It's a business model that needs to be disrupted, yeah. right? I was listening to a podcast about artificial intelligence, and you know they were projecting out 10 to 15 years, and the number of jobs that artificial intelligence will be able to do is incredible. But the person said something really interesting. He said, but the jobs they won't be able to do are the creative jobs 
and the compassion jobs. I, I couldn't agree more that the skills that people are going to need to be going forward, they need to be creative problem solvers. They need to be able to communicate. They need to be able to work with work in teams and they need to be innovative and entrepreneurial. You know, those are the skills when I think about the future, what people are going to need to be successful. And, and so I would argue, you know, and actually I gave, I've given a talk, you know, at national conferences about this, that we need to, you know, double down on the humanity and liberal arts part of our education, you know, because those skills, that's where we learn them. As you know, we're engineers. In engineering class, you know, we learned the answers were black and white, right? They yep. were equations. You know, you, you didn't learn those other skills in engineering. You know, I often talk about the most valuable course that I ever had was a philosophy of religion course because I was writing papers on the existence of God and I struggled. That was the hardest course I ever took. I, I, so I think that part of, you know, we continue to focus on our core. You know, I think that that's important. That's our important skill sets we have. But on the same respect, we have to change the, the paradigm in which we're teaching students. And we talk about how do we deliver the value, either more value at the same cost or the same value at lower cost. I do believe technology is going to lower the cost of education ultimately, like it has every other sector. You know, when I think about what we need to be doing is, you know, the flipped classroom or, you know, students watching videos and learning before they come. And then when they're here, we give them real world problems and examples. And the, the instruction becomes how they master what they've seen or, or, or heard the knowledge they've gained before they come into the classroom. And that can be done, you think about those in engineering business, but that can be done in any course. It can be done in ethics and other things where, you know, we actually are applying those principles. And I think that's where we think about, you know, that the future is. And uh, I also believe that, you know, the idea that uh, students are going to get a degree in four years and never come back to Marquette or another institution, those days are over as well, because I think that people are constantly, we have to come back and retool. So I think the future of higher ed, where where I believe the market opportunity is, is those universities that position themselves that are easy to come back to, to get skills they need as they need to evolve and change. And that may be it may be a degree, but it, more likely it's going to be some kind of certificate or badge or just you know something people need to get to the next stage in their career. I struggled in philosophy of man. I think at Marquette okay. it's called Phil 50. <laughs> and I still remember the questions they wanted me to answer. I, I just thought, I thought the professor was crazy. It's like, I don't know. What, what, isn't there an answer you want? And the answer was there wasn't. It was a thinking process. And I think you know that's so much of what's buried in the Jesuit tradition is this – I know years ago we did something, uh, what does Jesuit 2.0 mean? And it's, we don't teach you what to think, we teach you how to yeah. think. And I think there's something to that because it feels like we need more experiential learning and more multidisciplinary learning because the real world is rarely engineers sitting by themselves anymore. And so how do we make that pivot in a place? And, and when I say a place, I don't mean just Marquette, higher ed generally, where it's really structured around these silos of colleges. Yeah. And so that's where we need to evolve and change. And I often talk about how when we build new buildings or, or do new things on the campus that they'll never be single disciplinary anymore. And the, as you know, the collisions and interactions that happen when you have people from different different, different areas, just like myself, the cognitive scientists, you know, what I learned from him and the innovation that occurred were just, you know, just amazing. And so creating more spaces on the campus, when I think about what's the power of the 707 Innovation Hub, you know, again, that idea came from two students, an engineering student and a business student, Sam and Creighton to have a, a place where students can find each other and be innovative and entrepreneurial and have external partners and have the university support their endeavors. 
those are the spaces of the future when we think about what the university needs to do. And, you know, when we think about a new business school, for example, it's not going to be just business. We're going to have engineering and supply chain, you know, the, the, the kind of those interfaces there as well uh, to ensure that we are preparing students for what is a multidisciplinary, you know, future for them. Is there ever going to be another building that's for a college? Well, it's like Innovation Alley. That's exactly the concept of Innovation Alley. You know, it's to solve a problem. So we need to provide a space where we can have corporate partners, you know, working with our faculty and students solving problems we know that are going to be helpful to society, but also give our students and faculty skill sets and opportunities to be innovative and entrepreneurial. And so we think about that concept, that's exactly what you described. And I think that's really where the future is going to be headed. So you've been in a startup, you know, you've been part of building a new business to solve a problem. So you and I tomorrow decide we're going to go start our new uh, way to approach higher ed. What would you do different that versus changing it from the inside. If you were starting from the outside, what problem would you come at differently that's hard to do from the inside? Well, you've already pointed out, you know, higher ed was built in silos. And so every school or college, you know, you know, have their own entity, their own buildings. Uh, and the world is not, that's not the future. And they're also, we're built in a, an era where the standard classroom lecture model applied. And so, the spaces, first of all, will be completely open, you know, interactive and different, but also the people in them will be from all disciplines, you know, going forward. And I think that's really the, the key, you know, to, to helping, you know, us formulate what the future, you know, would look like. It would be just the physical space would be different. And then the technology platforms, you know, be able to have you know, much more of this, you know, developed so that you could do much more of this, you know, using the technology. But understanding, going back to a conversation we had the very beginning of this, knowing that the person-to-personal interaction is still going to be important to provide the skills that people need. So we still need those spaces where you are working on real-world problems and pushing each other and having those disagreements and those dialogues so that we can be creative and innovative as well. So, you know, that, if I was to think about what the future of higher ed, if we were starting from scratch, would look like, I think that's, you know, much more than what it is today. As you know, I recently agreed to be the first innovator in residence here at Marquette. We're not really sure what that means yet, but they said, okay, well, this is great. Do you, where would you like an office? I said, I don't, I don't want an office. <laughs> I said, where are you going to sit? I'm going to say, wherever. What do you mean? I said, well, I'm just going to go wherever I need to go. And it's because I want those interactions, right? You know, so much of what I learned and one of the challenges, as you know, when you're leading a large organization is there's a lot of people that want to, hey, you stay here and we'll bring everything to you way easier to lead being out and about than it is sitting and waiting for things to come. I agree. My conversation with Mike continued, and we shifted to what he's doing to address trauma in Milwaukee, which you will find in your podcast feed as part two of this episode. Please be sure to check that out. We hope you're listening to this show because you want to become more innovative. I don't think there's a recipe for innovation, but there are key ingredients that anyone can explore that can help them find their innovator spirit. If you took anything away from my conversation with Mike, I hope that it's how he saw firsthand that innovation can be taught. That's good news for this show because if it couldn't be taught, if you had to be born with it, then why listen? Mike demonstrates that you can be an innovative leader even if you're in an industry that is not eager to change. In fact, those are the industries that need innovation the most. If you found value in this episode, 
please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you know someone who might be interested, please share the podcast. Our goal is to enable an entire new generation of innovators and leaders. And exposing more people to the conversations happening in this podcast will help us do just that. I want to thank the team at Go Get It Marketing and Media for their support and help with the launch of this podcast. We are always open to critical feedback. My belief as an innovator is anything you do today can be done better tomorrow. Thanks for joining us on this journey and developing your own innovator spirit. Let's go change the world.